Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for the beauty of music. Thank you, God, that uh, you have gifted us with music in order that we would uh, experience uh, just some of the great beauty that you have uh, created on this earth with us as humanity. And God, with all of, all of creation, uh, there are so many, so many beautiful uh, sounds and sights that are all reflective of your great creativity and imagination. And we're thankful, Lord God, that we can share these things as we gather. God, today, as we look at this final passage out of Hebrews and his admonition uh, to uh, not neglect gathering together, I pray, Lord, that you would deepen us in our knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ and of his work to cleanse us and to purify us, both internally and externally, and how this draws us into community with each other in a whole variety of ways. So, God, I pray that you would uh, strengthen um, me as I communicate your word, that it would be accurate to your text, that it would unite it and strengthen us as a church and strengthen our love for, for each other and for the world, and that it would give honor and glory and praise to you. In your son's name, amen. So I had a strange experience recently. I was um, reading a couple news outlets that wouldn't normally be considered um, encouraging to those in the faith, but both of them uh, were positive and encouraging of church attendance and church participation. Uh, the first one I ran across was The Atlantic in an article called Breaking Faith. And the argument that this article was making, just in, in reviewing uh, what has been going on in our country over the last few years. Um, the, the, the assumption has always been that as secularism increases, we're going to move away from the culture wars that have been brought on by uh, a lot of religious fervor. That was the assumption. Well, what is panning out is that, and I quote, this is uh, from this article, Breaking Faith by Peter Bainart. He says that secularism is making America's partisan clashes more brutal. So as people are becoming less religious and more secular, the cultural clashes are becoming more violent. It's exactly opposite of what everybody has kind of assumed over the last few decades. And the revolutionaries that are kind of the leading edge of the increasingly violent um, clashes, um, the alt-right, the Sanders Democrats, the new civil right groups, they're not church-going. They're not church-going conservatives. They're not church-going liberals, and they're not church-going minority groups. And that's what this article explains. It just goes down each one. And that the, the front leading edge of the culture wars that are going on right now are led by these groups that are predominantly churchgoers. They may be a faith, but they're not churchgoers. And that was a, that's something critical to uh, both of these articles that I read is that it's not addressing people that hold faith. It's addressing people that are actively involved and studying people that are actively involved in church or not. 
And he says this, the reasons are unclear. He says, maybe it's the values of hierarchy, authority, and tradition that churches instill. Maybe, religious, maybe religion builds habits and networks that help people better weather national traumas and thus retain their faith in that system. For whatever reason, secularization isn't easing political conflict. It's making American, American politics even more convulsive and zero-sum. For years, political commentators dreamed that the culture war over religious morality that began in the 60s and 70s would fade. It has, and the more secular, more ferociously national and racial culture war that has followed is worse. And then the New York Times, in an editorial by a gentleman named Ross Duthat, and he has, it's, a, it's an op-ed piece, he's a regular contributor to the New York Times, and um, it's, kind of, it's kind of got a, a cynical, sarcastic bit of humor to it. But his argument in this, in this op-ed is that uh, liberals need to return to their liberal Protestant churches. And I'm just going to read some of the quotes because I want to retain some of the humor that he had in the, in the op-ed piece. And you can see where he goes. He says, for the sake of their country... He is a Catholic, the author of this op-ed piece. For the sake of their country, their culture, and their very selves, liberal post-Protestants should find a mainline congregation and start attending every week. He says, do it for your political philosophy. More religion would make liberalism more intellectually coherent, more politically effective, more rooted in its own history, less of a conjurie of suspicious allies, and more of an actual fraternity. Do it for your friends and neighbors, town and cities. Thriving congregations have spillover effects that even anti-Trump marches can't match. He says, do it for your family. Church is good for health and happiness. It's a better place to meet a mate than Tinder. And even its most modernized form is still an arc of memory, a link between the living and the dead. He says, I understand that there's the minor problem of actual belief. But honestly, dear liberals, many of you do believe in the kind of open gospel that a lot of mainline Protestant churches preach. You say you're spiritual but not religious because you associate religion with hierarchies and dogmas and strict rules about sex. But the Protestant mainline has gone well out of its way to accommodate you on all those points as well. So he's arguing, we need more Americans to go to church, even you Protestant liberals. So obviously there's a little bit of humor in it, but you can see, and it's surprising but what you see is an increased acknowledgement, even in these kinds of publications, where they see that church going is good. Not only for the individuals that are going to church, but for society as a whole. And so I wanted to conclude this series with the passage out of Hebrews that admonishes us to not neglect meeting regularly. 
We spent the whole series addressing why we meet and what forms we meet and the purposes of meeting. And I want to address obstacles. Before we get into the passage, though, I want to just point one thing out. Humanity was created to be fundamentally disposed to being together in community. When we were singular, when Adam was just the only guy on the planet, it was not good. It was not good. He even had God. But God said it was not good. He did not reflect what it meant to be made in the image of God as he stood as a single, isolated being. And so God created woman, and they together were given the task of reproducing and multiplying over the face of the planet. And the intent was that humanity would be increasingly widespread and intimately connected with each other, nobody ever feeling alone, and walking with God in perfect harmony. That was the intent. That is what we are disposed to. That is where we go to naturally outside of the rule of sin. The further from God that we become, the more we become distant from others. And that's what we can see going on even in our culture. So the work of Jesus is to restore us to fellowship with God, and the work of Jesus is to restore our fellowship with each other. Remember, man and woman, when they, when they chose to follow the serpent rather than God, they hid from each other and they hid from God. Separation. Jesus is coming to bring us back. Jesus is not only working to bring us back into the church, he is building the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is going to be a place where all nations, all races, this is, the vision of Christianity is what the vision of our world is. There is no political or religious system that is steeped in all races and ethnic groups and peoples and cultures coming together and being unified. The, nothing even comes close to what God has envisioned in the scriptures from its earliest writings and from the beginning of history. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That really got stuck in there. So the admonition here 
is to continue to meet together in order that they would encourage one another in their faiths and to encourage one another to love and good works, okay? Expressions of kindness to the people around them. That's one of the significant contributions that the author of Hebrews here says is the point of meeting together. And there was evidently some in their community, in the network of churches that he was writing to, that just regularly made a habit of not participating in the life of the church. And so I want to point out here, first of all, obstacles. Obstacles. And he mentions a couple. The first one is a guilty conscience. Is a guilty conscience. And you all have experienced this. I've experienced this. You've committed some sort of sin, transgression. You have betrayed somebody. You have hurt somebody. You have lied about something. You have done something out of selfish motive and it's caused hurt to others. You've physically abused them or verbally abused them or whatever. And there is guilt. There is guilt. And maybe it's gone on for a really long time. And you know the feeling. I know the feeling. The last thing that you want to do is be around people that represent God and His image and His purposes and His word and His truth. Because being in the presence of people that are calling upon the name of Christ is a constant witness and testimony to your feelings of guilt. And so he's saying, do not let your guilty consciences keep you from gathering with the people of God. Do not let your guilty consciences hinder you from experiencing love. Because you can see here in the passage, come together and consider. Consider. He doesn't say come together and love one another. He says to come together and consider how to stir up one another for love and good works. That means we are to be objects of each other's consideration. And so he's saying, do not let your guilty consciences pull you away from the intentional love and consideration of others. Do not isolate yourself. And the cure for this, the cure for the guilty conscience isn't denial, because that's what you're currently in. And it's not thinking, okay, I'll eventually get over this, and then when I'm good enough, I'll get back into the fellowship of God's people. That's never going to happen. You need God's people to help you grow in your comprehension of the gospel, because the gospel is what enables us to draw close, to draw near. And the image here out of, out of Hebrews is a, is a reference back to the passage in Exodus, which I covered weeks ago, where God came down to the mountain and He wanted the people to draw near to Him and to hear His word directly, and the people did not draw near. 
They had guilty consciences because of their grumblings in the wilderness, complaining about God not feeding them, complaining about God not giving them water, complaining that God wasn't going to protect them. All these fear-based things that never came true. Okay, all of these complaints, they came to that mountain with a guilty conscience. And because of that guilt, they drew back. They did not draw near. And she's saying, listen, we have a final sacrifice. We have the ultimate priest. We have the ultimate temple. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. He has cleansed our consciences. You could say, well, my conscience doesn't feel cleansed. Well, it's not Jesus' fault that your conscience, that you don't feel like your conscience has been cleansed. See, the, the scriptures say that Jesus has died for the sins of the world and has made atonement for all. Some people take those passages and they are spread throughout the New Testament. Some people take those passages and say that everyone then receives eternal life because Jesus has paid for all the sins. It's not the application from it. Because the scriptures still teach that you are dead in your sins unless you appropriate the gospel for yourself through faith. Through faith. And so all of us at some point are at, at, at places of great weakness because of our pasts. And it keeps us from full participation with the people of God. And what he's saying is this. Immerse yourself in the cleansing work of Jesus Christ and believe, believe. Believe that whatever sin or series of sins, years of sins, believe that whatever it was that you still feel guilty about, believe that it has been cleansed. Because it has. Jesus took it upon himself. Just this, this, I can't even remember what specific sin it was this week, but it was, it was something that I considered minor. But it was also something I considered embarrassing because of how minor it was and foolish. And I just stopped and took a step back and I'm like, even that, <laughs> that, that the sin and then my shame which I felt just burdened by. Just, it's washed away. It's washed away. And Jesus has took the shame upon his shoulders. And any shame that I leave there is, is because I just don't believe that the sacrifice of Christ is enough. Church, people, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is enough. It's enough to cover whatever it is you feel inside of you that's isolating yourself from others, that's isolating yourself from a pure and sincere and open and transparent walk with other people. And sometimes we have a lack of transparency with others and, and don't have a lack of transparency with, with other people. And so there are, there's sometimes we have, we have sins that we've committed against 
people in specific or, or we have a relationship with people that we feel they're going to maybe judge us in a different way than others. And so we have this variety of experiences in terms of, of whether we feel close to some and close to others or far away or distant because of, of our relationships. And let me just encourage you, all of the relationships in your life to the degree that you can, because Paul says you can't be at peace with all people, but you can pursue peace as much as you can. But from your point of view, from your perspective, you should be able to walk with transparency and a feeling of shamelessness with everyone, even people that you've sinned against and that you owe. Because ultimately, you, you, people can't sit in judgment of you and you can't let them sit in judgment of you, at least in your mind. If they choose to do that, that's their problem. But the scriptures say that when we sin, this is out of Psalm 51, when David committed murder and adultery. Against you, you only have I sinned, Lord God, because you alone are the one that sits in judgment, for you alone are righteous. We can't judge one another and sit in judgment of one another and stay angry and bitter and resentful of one another because the sins of people against us are ultimately sins against God. And we have no right to sit in judgment because we've committed the same sins against others. And God has chosen His Son to carry the weight of people's sin. And so God has forgiven. He's opened up the door for forgiveness. And so... He's drawing us back together. Internal, that's that internal cleansing. The second thing is an external cleansing. All right, not, don't use the plastic cup again in the holder. The second one is an external cleansing. Some of us, aren't very confident about our bodies. I would say most of us are not very confident about our bodies. Maybe it's genetics. Maybe we don't have good habits. Maybe we eat too much and don't exercise enough. Maybe you lived a life of substance abuse and self-abuse that has left your body in a, in a state that you have no control over at this point. Maybe you were born with physical impairments and handicaps. Maybe somebody has hurt you physically. Maybe you were in the military and you got wounded and damaged and your body is broken. Maybe you've been sexually abused. Maybe your parents physically abused. There are numerous ways where we do not feel confident in our bodies. And that causes us to pull away from fellowship with other people as well, amazingly enough. And I love this passage because it acknowledges not just the internal cleansing of Jesus Christ in our consciences, in our sense of guilt and shame and confidence before God and others, but it is also dressing the sins that, 
that affect our bodies. And when I say sins, that's a broad term. It's very helpful to understand sin as a broad term, as anything that reflects um, evil or bad or ugliness. Okay, sin is just this general broad term for a lack of perfection. Okay, it doesn't have to be moral. It doesn't have to be evil. Evil and immoral things are fall under the category of sin. Okay. So maybe your body is somehow, well, all of our bodies are affected by sin to some degree. But sometimes our physical bodies are affected because of transgressions. A transgression is a violation of the law of God. Maybe we have transgressed and brought damage and shame to our bodies. Maybe others have transgressed the laws of God and have brought damage to your body. Either way, the Scriptures teach that Jesus Christ has brought a washing to our bodies. A washing to our bodies. So that whatever sinful effects your body carries, whether it's your sins and transgressions or other sins and transgressions against you, or maybe it's just, you know what, this is the way I am because this is the way my mom and dad were and their grandparents, you know, so whatever, whatever it is about your body that you're ashamed about, Jesus has washed it and cleansed it and it's so it should no longer be a reason for you to pull away from fellowship with others. He has taken away physical bodily shame. You can say, well, I still have this broken body. Yeah. It's the flesh. And it is no longer you. You are no longer your body. You have been raised with Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father. And you will have someday a resurrected body, and that will be you. But the body you are now in is not you. Don't hold on to it anymore. Don't hold on to the sins that you've committed in the body that have destroyed your body. Don't hold on to the sins of others that have been committed against you and how it's affected your body. Let it go. Because it's not you. Quit protecting it. Quit protecting it. Those are the two obstacles that the author of Hebrews brings up. I found a third article. This is a year ago, called, It's Hard to Go to Church. Also in the Atlantic by a writer named Emma Green. It's hard to go to church. And she gave two reasons of why people don't go to church to add to Hebrews. The first one, it's just plain hard to get to church. Logistics. Logistics. I don't want to get up early. I'm comfortable inside my house. I don't want to get out again. All these kinds of things that we have as excuses to not participate in the life of the church. Um, This is one of the reasons why I like the house church model is that if we really put a lot of energy and investment and work into these small congregations spread throughout the Twin Cities that meet on different nights throughout the week, 
little closer for most people than this one centralized location that we have here in the Midway neighborhood. But fight that urge. I don't know what great gospel connection here is on logistics other than maybe don't be lazy. I don't know. But we're going to have just practical things that come up that oftentimes make getting to church difficult. My encouragement here would not let that become a habit. As a family, you probably do things. If you are in a family or as you, you grew up in a family, you probably had things that you did that were routines in your family. The church is a family. And it has some routines. Make those routines a part of your life, a part of your family's life. Make those commitments. Make those commitments because it's good for you. It's good for your family. It's good for your neighbors. It's good for your cities. It's good for your nation. And it is where God is going to bring his cleansing work to you. She also mentioned that the, the second reason was a mistrust of religious institutions. And this has been one we've been reading about and observing in the media for some time. There's a general mistrust of all authorities and all institutions in our society right now. And there's a mistrust of religious institutions. I would note that one of those reasons is leadership abuse, where they're the senior leader or senior leaders become too powerful and controlling and they use anger and manipulation to get people to do what they want them to do. And then there's financial abuse where people use their access to the church's resources for their own purposes. And I would say this, these things exist, these things do go on. I would like you to know that both in the context of, of our leadership and our finances, there are multiple levels of different people. <laughs> All right, so it's very difficult. It would be very difficult for, for anyone to get away with anything in regard to leadership or financial abuse. Those are four reasons, four obstacles. Guilty consciences, dirty bodies, it's hard to get to church and a mistrust of religious institutions. But why, you know, what, what do we see in here? What do we see? What, what is the positive? These are, these are the obstacles, but if we erase these obstacles, or if we let these obstacles overtake us, if we let them affect us, what are the consequences? What, what, are, what are the good things that we will take hold of if we are actively involved in a church, what things will we miss out on? Well, the first thing I think that we see is our sins will continue to master us. Our sins will continue to master us if we remain isolated. If you look in the Scripture, if you look in the Scripture, one of the key ingredients... For us to overcome our sins, whether it's sins that we commit, sins that, that are affecting us internally because we've committed them and we're guilty and our consciences are bearing witness to it, or whether sins that have been committed against us or whether they're bodily, 
the work of the church is to cleanse each other. We do it by truth speaking. We do it by praying. We do it by loving. The work of the Holy Spirit is involved in the church. You guys, the, the, the Spirit is at work to cleanse you, and He's doing it through the gospel and through the church. It's how the Spirit's at work. That's the a message of Ephesians 4, 16 through the end of the book. The, the Spirit is at work to unify us, to grow our love for one another, and that's done by entering into these super vulnerable relationships where we are open and people can speak into our lives and we can speak into others and we're there to care and love for people and each other and to be loved unconditionally. If we back away from the church, our sins will only continue to master us, make us more and more isolated, and guilt and shame and fear will increasingly grow, leading us into very destructive life patterns. We will die. We will be lonely, and in our loneliness, we will continue to pursue selfish, lonely pursuits. We will have no common confession. He says here, hold on to the common confession that you have, which is the gospel. If we don't hold on to that and we continue to isolate yourself, and one, again, one of the, I'll, I'll post these articles on the city so that you could read them. One of the things, as I've said, that they pointed out is that a person having a faith conviction, liberal, conservative, what, that is not as significant in terms of the effect on their lives as if they have a faith conviction but are also actively participating in a local church. They saw that between those who affirmed a faith, even evangelical conservatives, evangelical conservatives that were not in a church, their lives were worse off, they were less happy, this whole list of negative things. But those who are actively participating in a local church, same beliefs, but those who are actively participating in, in a local church, their lives were increasingly and observably better in every metric that they could measure. We will fail in our mission without each other contributing to what God has given to us. See, it says here, do not neglect meeting together so that you can consider how to encourage one another to love and good works. Love and good works, if you look throughout the New Testament, are these two common words for expressions of, of ministry and service to those in the church and to those outside of the church. We are called to them as individuals. We are called to them as family. Love and good works. We're called to them as a church. If we fail to meet together either in this Sunday corporate event, which has its very specific and effective purposes, or in our house church meetings, what we will see is a slow erosion, but definite, in our mission, obviously. Think about your participation in the house church over the years that you've been here, and as you've seen people's lives change, as you've seen them internally grow more alive in their consciences because of the cleansing of Jesus Christ and the gospel, the work of the Holy Spirit, and the work of the church. If that wasn't there, if that, if that meeting wasn't there, and the relationships develop 
all of those experiences that you've had and the people that you've observed coming alive, okay, and those that you have seen push off the shame of their bodies, they wouldn't be there. They wouldn't be there. You wouldn't be experiencing it. You wouldn't be seeing it. There'd be no discipleship home. It's small, it's growing, but we've affected lives through the discipleship home. And this fall, we want to launch our initiative to start preparing for a home for women and children. If we don't come together and hold to the common confession of the gospel and let ourselves be cleansed by the gospel to feel the love of Jesus Christ, to experience the love of God, to experience the unity that he pulls us together in, if we don't come together in that unity, we don't accomplish things. It is when we experience the love of God and the love of each other that we are then able to love others. So throw out the discipleship home. And any future discipleship homes that may come as a result of our work together. And how many lives and generations are going to be affected there? Just as many lives and generations in our house churches. In two weeks I leave for, for Mozambique. Uh, they have uh, the people that I'm working with in Portugal and Mozambique have translated the first booklet that we use in our house churches, Rooted, Colossians 1 and 2. They're working on the other ones. They're in the process of being printed. We're going to spend a two-week time in Mozambique in the city of Beira, which is in central Mozambique on the long, uh, eastern Indian coast, the Indian Ocean. We're going to spend a week going through our message of the Bible class, the same thing we do here. And we're going to spend a week going through training people how to use the booklets in house church contexts. If we wouldn't be coming together as a church in our house churches, our Sunday morning, our various efforts and classes and events that we have, we would not be extending ourselves to love others in that way as well. There's no mission if we don't meet together. There's no accomplishment of the purpose. So I want to I use this time as a call to community and as a call to our mission. We're going to spend the whole fall. It's been, it's been about six years since we have had a series specific on our mission. What is it that we are doing as a church? Where are the, what are the scriptures that are informing us and giving us some structure and focus to this. So this fall, we're going to go over the book of, of, of Titus, primarily in some smattering of other New Testament books, Acts and Colossians and Ephesians. Um, but we're going to look at and deepen in what our mission and calling is as a local church. But on Sunday, this next Sunday, we have one of our baptism services. And I would urge, urge you to consider baptism. Baptism is the means through which Christ is, has called his people to commitment, not only to identify themselves with him in the gospel, because he says, baptize them, baptize, go and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Spirit. So baptism is a, is a willing identification and immersion into the name of God, into him as a person. 
as a being, and, and we are identifying ourselves with him. But because we share a common name, we are also identifying ourselves with the family of God. We all share the name of God. And so that's what baptism is. And so if you're sitting here and you haven't been baptized, or if you're sitting here, maybe you're, maybe you're still considering Christianity, and you're feeling a draw to the wisdom of the Scriptures, you're feeling a draw to the love of Jesus Christ, you're feeling a draw to the grace and the love of God and the love of His people, then trust in the message of the Gospel, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and He has died and taken your shame and your guilt on His shoulders so that you would not experience the death that those things deserve. He took the death so that you could have life. And those who have believed in that are called into his family. And so if you believe that and have not been baptized, we would encourage you to consider baptism. I would say make a fresh commitment to your house, church. Make a fresh commitment to, to Sunday mornings. Let me pray. Lord God. Thank you for the, the message of Hebrews and its strong words. And thank you, God, that we, we live in a world, really, where the wisdom of God is being made known in, a, in some really strange ways, where we see the people of the world and the publications of this world acknowledging the value of being a part of a local church community. And we pray, God, that you would continue to strengthen us to be your witness in this world, that we as a church community could grow and shine with the light of the gospel. In your son's name we pray. Amen.